Listener Production. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. This week, another in-depth conversation about the intriguing world of forensic science. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're also fascinated by conversations from within the world of forensics and gaining an understanding of how science is helping to solve crime. Maggots are in places that have easy access to the inside of the body and very moist. These places are the orifices, but can be also the wounds. And that can give us some more information about the dynamics and the crime scene reconstruction. I have to admit to not being the biggest fan of maggots. So if you're not into chats about decomposition and bugs and things like that, then I might suggest skipping this episode. But if not, let's jump into the conversation with Paola and hear about the first case she ever worked on. My first case was actually an unexpected case for me. So I prepared myself as, you know, I'm going to go to the scene or I'm going to go to the mortuary. I'm going to find this person covered by bugs and I'm going to scoop them away. But my first case happened to be on a a river uh, of the big city of Turin. So in Turin, the city where I come from, there are two main rivers. And these two rivers are often the scene of a crime or suicide. And my first case was in one of these rivers. And the person was actually not covered by bugs, was covered by algae. And uh, there were bites of rats and was completely different for everything that I expected. And also the crime scene itself was extremely different. I expected, you know, the crime scene do not cross type, you know, the tape that you can see in the movies. Well, when the sea moves to the water environment, to the rivers, to the ocean, to the sea, well, that doesn't happen. You don't have the police, you have the firefighters, and then the police arrives, and then the uh, paramedics, and then the pathologists, and then the public prosecutor in, in that case. So it was a completely different story, a story that normally is not told in the movies, because it's very it's very difficult to uh, play a case in the in in the ocean or in an aquatic environment. The body moves. This is the main thing. When a body is found in the ocean or in a river, it normally moves from place to place. So you had to catch the bodies, not just go in there and collect the body. You had to catch the body. You don't use the body bag, you use the water body bag. That is a completely different story. Yes, there is the zip and there is, um, you know, the structure of a, of a bag, but it's made on purpose to be able to zip the body when the body is still in water so that you don't lose any item or animals connected to the body itself. If you uh, hook the body using a hook of some sort and you winch that to the surface or you take it away, there is a possibility to lose the wallet with the information of the ID, a pair of key, uh, some of the insects or the aquatic animals that are attached to the body. So a water body bag that is normally not used can save a case. So as a little girl, did you used to collect bugs? I used to collect everything that was alive and was around me. I was collecting the the little maggots from the chestnuts and I was putting them in the little uh, 
pots that my mom gave me in a little kitchenette, you know, little kid, little kids, Italian kids. Obviously, you have a kitchenette and you have all the little pots and each of the pots has th things inside that were not supposed to be food. And um, I was just in love with everything that was around me. It could be stones, can be gems, can be maggots, can be seashells. I was, um, yeah, I mean... That was me. I didn't have much of a love for dolls. I was surrounded by dolls who were keep giving me Barbies and things like that. It was never a thing for me. So, but any kind of little things that was surrounding me, oh, a beautiful, beautiful thing to look, look again, draw, uh, take a, a magnified lens, take a microscope, look inside, find a book, the encyclopedia. No, I know. I wanted to buy an encyclopedia to know more. Um, I don't know what I would have done if there was Google at the time. Can you please just explain what a forensic entomologist is and what you do? So a forensic entomologist is a, an expert who knows about insects and also other arthropods like crustaceans, millipedes and um, spiders that can be implicated somehow in a, in, in a legal situation. So not just a crime, but a civil allegation or, or, or a criminal investigation. And my job is pretty much to understand why, how, when, and all the information possible from the insects uh, to provide information in the court of law. What can maggots and flies tell us? What can insects tell us post-mortem? In a situation in which we have a dead body, the dead body will produce uh, odours, odours of decomposition, and the flies, the adult flies, are kind of the sharks of the decomposition. A shark can feel the presence of blood in a lot of water. The uh, flies can feel the presence of uh, the decomposing material in a lot of space. So they fly quickly because what they feel is, like, hello, there is food and my babies can survive there. So they arrive and they find the right place. They lay the eggs. And from that point, the eggs will start this biological clock on which we can calculate the time since that. That is not the actual time since that, is the colonization interval. So from how long the, the maggots are there. So how long after death will they sniff them out and find them? It depends on the environment. If I go to an environment like the bush, I will find insects pretty easily. But if I go to the desert or to a glacier or underwater, well, the insects are not there or they will take longer to arrive. So I had to consider all of these points when I do my calculation. If it's the middle of the summer, the body will produce the odour pretty soon sometimes even before death. So if you imagine someone that's been stabbed to death and the, uh, the different wounds would produce like necrotic tissues that is already very stinky. And this happened, um, and, and this is the reason why megotherapy is a thing. They go on uh, wounds even if the body is not dead. So sometimes you have a colonization internal that starts before death. And this is something that the smartwatch of the insect can detect. Now, if the body is available to the insect. So, for example, on a surface or on the surface, it's easy for the bugs to arrive and do whatever they have to do. But if the body is concealed somewhere, and I mean buried in the soil, closed in a suitcase, hidden in a trash bin, or sometimes happen in a, in a wardrobe, you know, the skeleton in the wardrobe, and 
these are going to make a longer time for the insects to detect the presence of the body and to reach the body. And not all the insects will be able to reach the body. For example, we have insects that we call coffin flies, and they are bugs that are able to enter through a little coffin space. These are very tiny. They will take longer to get to the body. Not blowflies will arrive to the body because the space for them to pass through is too small, but the coffin flies. So is that like getting through a zipper? Yeah, yeah. One of my research is actually on suitcases and zip and a, a trash bin. So one of my lines of research is um, limited access environments. Because, yeah, we see lots of movies in which the body is out there in the, in the field. But the reality is, and especially in Australia, lots of bodies are found in trash bin and in suitcases. So how long does it take for a flight to get to the body that is hidden in a suitcase? What is the correcting factor that we need to consider in our calculation of the time since death and the colonization of, of the insects? We did two different works, one in a, um, two different seasons, and we found out that there is a big difference between the colonization in a suitcase rather than in a trash bin. And uh, it's extremely interesting also the decomposition process. Let's say that the insect arrive, they start eating the body. So the biological clock happens, but the body died because of an overdose of drugs. What happens? Insects are like any other organism. They are what they eat. So if they eat a body that has been uh, drugged or poisoned or something, the drugs will enter in the system of the insects. Insects are made of chitin that is very similar to keratin. That is the matrix that we have in our nails and hair. That is a matrix that is normally used for toxicological examination. So instead of using the body for toxicological analysis, because the body might be very highly decomposed, or the body may be just a skeleton, so just bones, I can use the insects instead. And here is the smartwatch. It's not just about the time, but it's also about the substances that I can find that can tell us causes of death or con-causes of death. So how do you analyse the bugs? Do you dissect them? Do you put them on microscope slides? Do you put them under electron microscopes? Do you take, how do you take toxicology from a bug? Can you explain how you do when you when you actually do examine them? So there are different techniques depending on the type of insects that you have. You can have insects that are very, very tiny or that you need to see certain morphological features that are so tiny that you go scanning electron microscope. And part of my master thesis was uh, looking into the scanning electron microscope of many species. Um, otherwise, you normally use a stereo microscope or a microscope that you can look the bugs from the outside or sometimes you dissect it because you need to see the features on the skin. The skin has has horns. The horns can be more or less hairy. The sort of hair can give you information. With the head of flies, you really had to count hair by hair because some of the flies have a different count of hair and can be this species or the other species. Um, there is a very famous uh, fly, blowfly, that is even written by um, uh, Patricia Cornwell, that is a califora, that you have califora vicina and vomitoria. And the difference between the two is a beard. So you had to look for the beard of a fly <laughs> that is red. So you had this red beard or not if you have one fly or the other one. Um, you can do, go do DNA as well. 
DNA um, you basically is mushy mushy the, the insect and you do um, the, the analysis using a specific machineries same for the toxicology mushy mushy and gas chromatography mass spectrometry depending on what kind of analysis are you uh, what kind of elements are you looking for the other thing is that we also use new technologies for the analysis and now when, when I say that is because um, one thing that investigation should do and should improve in terms of uh, uh, investigative technique is not destructive analysis. So what we do should be as less destructive as possible because you never know in the future if that sample that you're going to destroy can be used by somebody else. Or if it will be a cold case in the future. Exactly. And maybe you have just a few. So sometimes you have a maggot mess of millions of maggots and it's okay, but sometimes you have two maggots. And so what do you do? Do you destroy them? Um, so uh, a few years ago, we tried a new technique that is called hyperspectral imaging. Um, it, the idea was uh, using the full uh, pupil case to see inside what you normally do. You have to open the puparia to see at what stage the little insect inside is turning in the morphology, in the in the metamorphosis. So is it close to a maggot or is it close to a actual flies that is going to fly away in a few hours? But you had to destroy that. You had to open and you're not going to have the original sample anymore. With the hyperspectral imaging, that is pretty much a, a camera that gives you information of under the surface. You can have um, a reflectance that is pretty much a wavelength that is different depending on what you find underneath. So instead of opening the mega, opening the pupae, we were just taking the picture of the outside to know what's inside, not even seeing what's inside. Does that help you with thickness and things like that or...? The thickness, it depends on the type of mag type of pupae, but the thickness is not important. The hyperspectral camera was used back in is was was born as a technique to find out if uh, under the soil there is, there are gold or silver or things like that. So it was used for geological uh, investigation. Uh, infrared as well has been used for the same technique. So try to see things through the surface without breaking the surface. And um, a study of hydrocarbons as well. So how this the structure, but is a bit destructive. And now we're going to use try to use proteomics to have more information. Sorry, what is that? So uh, the elements changes throughout the life of a of a bug. Even some genes change when the maggot is a maggot or when a maggot is a fly. So. Analyzing the DNA, not just for the species, but also what is switched on and switched off in terms of genes can give us information about the time. So our analysis are not about just the species, but also ways to identify how old they are. And then you have to connect them with the weather stations and the information about the temperature. So it's it's not easy, I can tell you. And sometimes you need more than one technique at the same time. And sometimes you need the help of a peer and the help of someone that does um, uh, does that as a job, like where people that work in the museum and just uh, analyze the species to have the double check that this is, um, that you're right in that, in that terms. So with somebody who has a body's been found and just say we're outside, where do you start looking? So you go from chaos to order. What is your process for doing that? First of all, when you arrive at the scene, you don't have to be biased on what are you going to find and where are you going to find the things. Because if you start biased that way, you're going to forget to look everywhere. So you go there and you look everywhere, first of all. But uh, 
because of experience and because of the physiology and the and the ecology of flies there are places in which there is more there is more often the possibility to find insects and this is the reason why so you had to consider that mama fly <laughs> is a, a lovely mum, but she will uh, lay the eggs or lay the maggots sometimes they don't have eggs and will fly away not a very lovely and caring mum. So she has to find the right place for her babies to to grow and have food and have access to the inside of the body, being protected and being especially very moist. Uh, eggs and little maggots really suffer of um, dry situations, so they need to be in a moist place. So the moistest places in the body are orifices. So you will find maggots... Um, little eggs on the mouth, in the, uh, in the nostrils, in the eyes, in the ears. And because it's also easy access to the internal part of the body, the little maggots will have a very small uh, um, mouth hook to eat. So they will not go on places that, where the skin of the body is very hard. For example, the palm of the, of the hands or the, uh, the feet. They can maybe find the armpit a very good spot or the neck because the, 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 the skin is very thin. Said that, Sometimes we find maggots in other places and that can give us some more information about the dynamics and the crime scene reconstruction. We said that maggots are in places that have easy uh, access to the inside of the body and very moist. These places are the orifices, but can be also the wounds. Injuries, yeah, Injuries. stab wounds or gunshot wounds or even defence wounds. Yes, exactly. So what happens is that uh, if I find maggots in places that are not the typical places, a little question has to arise in my head and try to understand a little bit more. What maggots do is that if there are many, they destroy, they eat so fast and the injury will be completely modified by their action. So I had to do a little bit more about that. There was a case a few years ago in which the maggots were found in the different part of the, let's say, the normal different part of the bodies, but they were also found on the hand of this person. And the question was, why they are on the hands? When we looked into the bones of the hands, we could see some injuries to the bones. So this person had defense wounds in front of, on the palm of the hands. So the inside were present on the palms because on the palms there were injuries. The injuries are on the palms because the person was trying to defend himself. So that, for example, could make suicide less of a theory if someone's shot in the middle of nowhere. And you consider the shotgun as well, and we come back to the toxicology side of the story. The maggot will go around the shot wound, especially if the shot, uh, shot wound is uh, very close, you will find GSR and you will find the GSR in the tummy of the maggots. And GSR is gunshot residue. The gunshot residues, especially uh, elements like uh, uh, lead, antimonium and barium, that is the typical uh, combination of things that you find in, a, in the gunpowder. And you will find that inside of the maggots. So these elements are present in the environment. But if you run the toxicology of the maggot and you find a spike, a huge presence of this, wait, why is that? Maybe there was a, a shotgun over there. There was a wound. Let's investigate a little bit more. How long would it take you, for example, to be at a crime scene? What would you be wearing? Are you concerned about biosafety? Is infection a possible risk for you as well? 
when you work on a um, on a case, you have to consider that you had to preserve evidence for everyone else that is working at the scene. So you are following whatever the uh, scene man- manager is asking you to do. So if they want you to wear the full PPE, the personal uh, protection equipment, you wear the full thing, and even the you know the mask, the special mask for uh, for biosecurity. Majority of the situation, you wear the full suit and the normal mask, but <laughs> In my case, I I am totally aware that I could have jumping maggots. And when I say jumping maggots, they can jump 50 centimeters. So I want to wear my uh, glasses, uh, protective glasses, because I don't want maggots to jump on my face and um, cover for the sheets. Nostril protectors. Everything protector. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the odor that the composition and the maggots is really strong. So it gets in all of your clothes. So underneath your PPE, you normally have something that you can throw in the washing, you can throw in the bin. Uh, after the work, uh, but it's a matter of protection of yourself, protection of the scene and protection of the investigation itself. So it is a requirement for everyone to wear whatever is needed to protect uh, what is there. Do you need to then shed gloves and things for each stage of insect that you are collecting? You have to be careful in that sense. What is um, said in some of the guidelines is to wear more than one pair of gloves on top of each other so that when you finish to do something in a certain area, you can remove the first pair of gloves. You don't have to have your hands out before you wear something on top. Um, Sometimes you have someone that helps you out. Uh, Normally the entomologists arrive not as first, so everything else has been taken before and they're just happy for you to scoop away the maggots. (laughs) That's that's an amazing thing to say. It's my turn now. I'm allowed to scoop away the maggots. I think the reason why I was employed by the health department as a student back in the days was because I basically called the head of the department and said, look, I'm interested in the maggots. Uh, I would just be very happy to come every time you guys have maggots and take them away. Yes, please come. We hate maggots. You come and you are like red carpets when you come. So, yeah, I think I made a, a profession out of something that everyone else hate. Can you talk us through a case that you have once attended? 2006, a case in the north of Italy. That was a, a very special case for me because it was the biggest case I worked back in the days. It was the first case in Italy in which a forensic entomologist, a person that was the head of the degree in natural sciences rather than pathology, uh, was allowed to the crime scene and worked from the crime scene to the court system. I was just fresh from the university. I was super, super young. And I remember it was an afternoon, hot afternoon. I was out with my, walking my dog and the pathologist that was uh, on the case. So in my city works that um, there is a pathologist, a forensic pathologist on call for 24-7 for one or two days. And uh, that phone has a bunch of numbers like the police, the prosecutor and blah, blah, blah. And the forensic entomologist, that was me. So I received a call and said, oh, what are you doing? I'm walking the dog. Um, We have a case. Are you coming? Sure, I'm coming. And when I arrived there, there was 
lots of going on. Um, there were also a couple of police people that were not feeling very well because the case was really full on. The order was extremely intense, it was middle of July, and uh, we were in a sort of a damp place, so it was already stinky as a place. And then there was this body that was highly decomposed. The body was wrapped in, um, in, a, in a blanket, covered by a duna and covered by a carpet. And was discovered because a couple of people, again, working with the dog themselves, saw this nice carpet and said, well, if nobody wants this carpet, maybe we can collect it. And as soon as they touched the, the carpet, well, everything came out from this carpet. And so they called the police. The police called the, uh, the, the pathologist. The pathologist called me. I brought my kit. <laughs> so every forensic entomologist has a forensic entomology kit. Uh, What's in that kit? That's what I want to know. So the kit is um, is very dynamic, Im- improves with the time. You normally, have, there are guidelines how to have this kit with little containers, containers of different forms. You have ventilated containers in which you can put the maggots and the maggots will stay alive. You have closed containers. Uh, you have containers for, um, for soil. You have containers for water. You have forceps. You have spoons. You have big spoons. Um, you can have a kettle because one of the things, as I said, is uh, um, boil the maggots first. So you can have even a kettle, so just in case you want a tea as well, you, you know, <laughs> all sorted. And, um, and then you have labels and pencils. Pencils are very important because uh, when you write the information uh, on, a, on a container, if you write them with a pen, the ink could disappear because of the presence of alcohol, um, ethanol, but pencil doesn't disappear. So pencil is um, graphite is forever. <laughs> and so it's, um, it's our best friend in that sense. Then you have um, sheets in which you write information like where you are, what you do, who are the people involved, the arrival time. So all the information that you want to maintain. Now, this is 2006. So there were not more, like smartphones. I arrived there using the map of the city, not even a TomTom. Uh, I, I I had um, my little photographic machine with a little, you know, paper pictures. The, you know, the camera was not a thing for everyone to have in their pocket. Uh, so today would be a bit different. And anyway, I arrived with my kit and my spoons and I took my pictures. I asked to take more pictures because, well, I had only a limited numbers of pictures. And um, I talked there. I one of the very important things that you need to have in the kit is a, a data logger for temperature and and humidity, because the growth the grow rate of an insect is based on the environmental temperature. So if it's cold, the life take the, the life cycle takes longer time. If it's hot, takes shorter time. So I need to know what are the temperature at the scene in order to backtrack the time needed to arrive to that stage. Now, in a situation like that, in which the body is not just on the surface, but is covered by things, it's not the environmental temperature, it's the macro and micro environmental temperature. So you need to have more than one thing in place to understand what is the difference between the outside and the underneath. And that was very complex. And this can create an issue when you had to provide the information is more limited the type of information that you can provide because when you arrive you're not the first person the first person is the person that removed the carpet so modify the temperature the maggots run away because they hate uh, the light so you have to run <laughs> you have to get the maggots out of um 
of the soil from far away. So it's, it can be very, very messy. But I collected enough maggots there and... Um, we then went to the to the mortuary. You can't collect the mortuary just yet. You have to wait for pe- paperwork to be signed, to have somebody assigned to the case. If you are assigned to the case, you will do the job. If you're not assigned to the case, you're not going to do the job and you're going to give away uh, everything you had taken at, at the scene. And then you go from that. So in that case, I... I did what um what I was supposed to do. That is, you take the samples and you divide the samples in two sub-samples. One sample is going to be fixed. So you, you kill them at the stage where you found them. So you know at what stage they were at the point when you collect them. And another sub-sample, you put them in a, in, a, in a grow cabinet or in a place in which you can have the adult sorted from the maggots. Why this? Because maggots are very difficult to identify in terms of species. And species grow differently based on the temperature and based on table of growth. So you need to be sure what kind of species you have. And location as well? Location as well. Different species for different locations? Yeah, and this is the reason why the smartwatch, (laughs) another smartwatch opportunity is to be a GPS as well. Insects are everywhere, but they are everywhere a little bit different. Even blowflies. You have blowflies that are more typical of human environments and you have blowflies that are more typical of suburban environment or certain seasons or certain specific locations. For example, the coffin flies or, for example, some flies that are connected to um, latrines, so so bathrooms, or that are connected to uh, to more c- certain animals or certain uh, part of the body as well. So all of these GPS information can tell you things that have been moved from place to place. So this might not be where the murder was committed. Exactly. This actually could have been committed somewhere else and the person moved. Yeah. So if we were in the bush and we find insect from the city, maybe the body was killed in the in the city and left for a while and then moved away. We were in the city, so the dam was in the middle of the city, so there was a, a combination of. But, hello, the murder of the carpet means that the carpet was very important here. People love carpets. Carpet can be beautiful, but they're also pretty dirty. A part of the dirtiness comes from mites. Mites are very, very tiny. You don't see them, but they're very typical different environments. And so part of the case was about the carpet, where the carpet was, if the mites community was similar to the mite community of the place where the suspect said that the story happened and the murder happened. So, yeah, so the GPS was kind of given not much from the blowflies, but from the mites. And we didn't expect that. Mites, uh, acarology applied to forensic is a even smaller discipline within forensic entomology. So you never know what you can find. Again, you don't have to be biased on what you're going to find. The only thing you have to know is how to look and what to look for, but not to be biased on what are you looking for. So how did the mites in that case affect the suspect or who was suspected? Did it influence the police and the investigation in any way? Well, in this case... Um, the story goes that the the person in that was found as a victim was identified as a, a sex worker, and the first suspect was the um, the the person that was looking after this girl and some other girls. 
The time since that, the colonization interval, was saying that the guy was in prison at the time in which uh, she died. So it kind of had an alibi. Now, the, the prosecutor in this case was not happy at all. It was for the first time, in, the forensic entomology was for the first time invited to an investigation and was pretty much saying, the only suspect you have is not the guy. <laughs> so um, wow. I was uh, kind of killing the case for him. But that allowed to the investigation to continue in a certain direction because what you do is you don't say who is the killer but you say what is the most possible time and space in which the crime happened so the resources and the funds and the time and the energy towards a case are not given are not taken everywhere but they are taken to a certain direction so you kind of remove all the noise and you follow the right voice. Because to, to actually convict somebody or to charge them, you need to have the victim, the um, accused the lo- at the same location at the same time. I like to say that the only thing that victims and perpetrators have in common is that they are at the same time in the same place. It's not always like that because I can poison you now and run and then you die in a few hours. But, you know, at some point we were together and when the crime actually started and then things happen after. But um, so the investigation continued and there was a person, uh, there was a second suspect, but also the second suspect was not fitting the time. And then the phone of the girl was found. And there was an exchange of messages with someone that was then investigated. And the person that was investigated finally said, yes, that was me. And then was asked, how did you move this body from place to place? Because you don't have a car and we are in the middle of the city and the body is not that small. And then he said, I moved the body with my bicycle. The bicycle? (laughs) Nobody saw you with a body wrapped on a bicycle. And then, then he said, well, the night was nobody was around. It was the night in which Italy was playing France in the World Cup final. World Cup. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, then he said that everything happened at the house or where the, she was, uh, you know, doing a job. And uh, they had to connect, just to put the dots, to connect the dots, we were able to get the mites from the apartment that were like similar to the bug, to the mites of the carpet. So yes, he was telling the truth in that case. There was nothing else in the story. So your work can remove suspects and implicate suspects at the same time. I have a big responsibility. How do you find that that weighs on you? It's um it's confronting sometimes, but then I try to kind of um convince myself I try to say to myself it's not just about me Uh, the investigation is never a Sherlock Holmes uh, activity it's always a combination of different people working together communicating together and uh, putting together the pieces of the puzzle so my piece of puzzle is just one of the pieces so the truth and the and the closure of a case or a miscarriage of justice is a work of a team have you, in your experience, whether it's in court, appearing, um, dealt with families as well or had to answer families' questions um, to help them understand what's happened to their loved ones? I normally don't deal with the family. I normally deal with the prosecutor or the lawyers. Um, happened to me that I met with the father of a girl that I worked as a cold case and that was, um, that was very emotional uh, but also I had to maintain my my position in uh, in the course of the investigation. So 
I felt the emotion in the room when the person was there, as well as I felt the emotion when the person that did the murder of the carpet was there because it was a, a guy that at the time was younger than me and I was young. Um, I felt the emotions in the room, but you had to you know, put your poker face and just represent science in that point. You don't represent a human being with feelings, you represent science. But you are a human being with feelings. Yeah. So you have to find ways to, yeah, to, let's say, de- debrief at some point. And for me, it's walking out, walking, uh, swimming, and uh, writing down my cases. For me, uh, a big thing is to write my cases for the scientific community. So one of many of my publications are case studies. Um, not because I want to look cool I did this case, but because my case, my experience, my mistakes or the thing that I did right can help the community of scientists, they can help the community of justice, they can help in not making the same mistake or they can, or can, people can follow what I did in order to obtain certain information. Dr. Paola Magni, thank you so much. I was actually so looking forward to this against my better judgment. <laughs> Um, but the more I learn about maggots, the more I realise how my prejudice was on based on ignorance, although I still don't want them at my family barbecue. <laughs> so thank you so much for not just the work you do and the especially the research, and you really are changing the world, but you're also inspiring so many people for science and STEM. And, yeah, just thank you so much. I think the world is a much better place for having you in it. <laughs> thank you for having me. That's um very rewarding that having someone that start loving things because I love them first. <laughs> Thank you. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. <laughs>